From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. David Pena Guzman is Associate Professor at San Francisco State University. In his latest book, When Animals Dream, Dr. Pena Guzman wonders whether humans are the only dreamers on Earth. What goes on in the minds of animals when they sleep? The book, When Animals Dream, brings together behavioral and neuroscientific research on animal sleep with philosophical theories of dreaming. It shows that dreams provide an invaluable window into the cognitive and emotional lives of non-human animals, giving us access to a seemingly inaccessible realm of animal experience. Thanks to everybody for being here and our collective apologies for the time confusion, uh, but I'm here, so hopefully we will have enough time to, to chat and get some good questions um, back and forth. And uh, thanks to um, Olivier for the invitation to, to speak here today. I'm not going to speak a lot. I thought I would just maybe make a few comments for about five minutes um, and then open it up for a Q&A session. Um, now, this book that I just published that came out in uh, July is the result of a couple of years worth of work that I did primarily during confinement. Um, the, the bulk of the book really was written in 2020. Um, and so 2020 was the time of the writing of the book. 2021 was the time when I was sending it all for publication, getting feedback from uh, reviewers, and then it came out in 2022. Um, but it is the result of me trying to bring together two bodies of literature that are sometimes in conversation, but not always. And those are philosophy and uh, animal science, um, largely because one of my interests as an academic and my background is in philosophy, I should mention that. Um, one of my interests is to think more closely about the nature of sentience and consciousness across uh, different species. And that question for me emerged out of um, my interest in human consciousness originally. So I was drawn to questions about how the brain and the body generate or curate the world of experience as we see it. Um, and, and over time, that question started dragging me towards the animal sciences. And anytime that you introduce the question of non-human species into whatever theme you're exploring, it's of course get a lot more complicated because suddenly you have to balance multiple species, you have to deal with limitations of interpretation, different kind of data. And that makes the work sometimes a little bit more difficult, but also um, more exciting. And so as I was doing research on animal consciousness and animal sentience, I began to gravitate toward this question, which is what happens to the animal mind during sleep? Um, as I point out in the book, if you read any book out there on animal consciousness, the vast majority of them, in fact, I would say 100% of them with maybe one possible exception, and always with a qualification, they all focus on waking experience. What are animals doing when they're awake? How do they behave? Can they solve problems in a maze? Um, how do they interact with other animals in the wild? So on and so forth. But that leaves open this other question, which is what I call the hidden world of animal consciousness. And here the term hidden is merely a reference to what happens to the animal subject when their experience is hidden from us uh, by the physiology of sleep? Um, when there is a reality simulation, what we call a dream, unfolding, even though it doesn't always translate into a motoric performance. Um, so often animals dream, um, but we don't see their dreams in the same way in which we see their waking. Um, experience being translated into waking behaviors. Anyways, 
So this led me to start thinking about the relationship between a lot of research that has been conducted on the science of animal sleep. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of articles about the science of sleep in other animals. <clears throat> and to move through that literature in search for evidence of dream experiences, which is a trickier question, right? You can study dream, you can study the physiology, um, uh, the, you, you can study neural activity, you can study a lot of aspects of it without ever really touching on the question of subjective experience in during sleep. And so I started moving through that literature and I started leaning on the philosophy and science of human dreaming to try to develop some conceptual resources for thinking about what we already know about animals. And so the book, When Animals Dream, is the result of me trying to bring those two things together as a way of building a case um, for the nightly subjective phenomenal or phenomenological experiences of, of other species. And uh, just um, as a way of bringing my um, opening comments here to, to a close, what the book does, and this is reflected in the structure of the chapters, is I begin by laying out an empirical case for animal dreaming, telling a historical narrative about the rise of interest in dreams in the 19th century and before, how that then was eclipsed uh, by certain developments in uh, psychology in the early 20th century, how the question is reemerging in the present, and uh, articulating the different kinds of evidence that I think we have available um, at our fingertips in order for us to justify the claim that other animals don't just sleep, but do um, and perform these imaginary mental acts, which we call dreams. So I begin by laying out the science. Then the book pivots to the philosophy where I talk about the significance of that evidence, what it tells us about animal consciousness, um, in particular, focusing on uh, uh, animal memory, animal imagination, animal desire, uh, and animal sentience. And I conclude the book then by doing yet another pivot um, from the philosophy of mind over to questions of ethics and moral theory. Um, and, and considering what everything that came before, the science and the philosophy, ultimately tells us about the kinds of creatures that other animals are um, and, and whether or not the fact that they dream might entitle them to what philosophers call moral status or moral standing. Um, do they deserve um, moral care, moral consideration, something like um, moral dignity? Um, and so the, the book is ultimately motivated by that question of, of our ethical relationship to other species. Um, I'll stop there uh, and then we can, um, you know, uh, have a conversation based on uh, what people think or um, objections that people might have. Okay, so I, I can see uh, smiles and nods and people with eyes questioning. So, do we have a like? Do we have an initial question? Anyone has a is a so maybe maybe get a bit closer as well so that our guests can hear you correctly. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, I was I was wondering that. Um, you know, you uh, in the in the podcast that I listened to talked about how animals, uh, like the chimpanzees, use sign language for like coffee in their sleep, um, or like you, you know the, the pets twitch in their in their sleep, um, and and then you also talked about the study where um, neuroscientists uh, severed the connection uh, in the brains of cats that allowed them like to not act out their, their dreams and they would just actually fully move around and, uh, fully act out their dreams. And I was just wondering, um, like, I, I, I think like humans do that too, to a certain extent. Um, but I guess like, uh, I, I was, I'm just curious about why they seem to be more active animals uh, to begin with, like the chimpanzees doing the sign language um, 
even without that that uh, connection being severed severed in their brains, or like how can we see a lot of movement from animals when they're when they're dreaming, even though they they still have some sort of paralysis going on. Okay. Yeah, good question. So I I wouldn't quite say that say chimpanzees are more active than other animals. It's just that they are active in ways that are tailored to their specific lifestyle and their developmental trajectory and their evolutionary histories. Of course, with the case of ASL, we're talking about developmental trajectories since that's not an evolutionary trait of um, chimpanzees, right? It's something that a chimpanzee picks up, uh, picks up culturally and socially from their environment over the course of an individual life. Um, and when we think about dreams, we often think of them as being trapped by the physio by the neurophysiology of sleep because it induces a state of atonia. And uh, in some ways, that way of thinking about dreams, I find interesting. And there is a, um, a an element of poetic license to that of thinking about a subject that is trapped or a subjective experience that is trying to bre uh, break through, but there is always aspects, but there are always aspects of the dream experience that pierce through the atonic state. Um, in the case of humans, we often talk about REMs, rapid eye movements. Um, you know, this is how we divide the sleep cycle in mammals between non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And uh, since the 1950s, we have thought that the movement of the eyeballs under the eyelids corresponds to the subjects, to the ego uh, in the dream, the dream ego, scanning the visual field in the dreamscape. And so that is a behavior that happens to break through um, in the case of a lot of mammals. Unfortunately, because that is one of the main behaviors that makes it through the neurophysiology of, of sleep, it has really dominated research on, on dream-related behaviors. And what's important to note is that with other species, you might find very different kinds of behavior. For instance, now we are realizing that if you want to study um, similar behaviors in, in other species like, like rats and um, uh, mice and cats, you might need to look for whisker rapid whisker movement just because of the significance of that in the lifestyle of those animals. Um, or you might, um, I found research from the 1960s and early 70s. Um, this was French research that um, took me a while to, to find um, of horses primarily displaying nasal labial movements more so than rapid eye movements. And that just could be because of the role of, of auditory and vocal uh, sensory qualities in their experience. Maybe that's just more dominant. Um, and, and when you think about the sensory capacities of other animals that are super different from, from ours, we should be very open about what to expect. In the case of chimpanzees, we see that behavior, the, the occasional communication through ASL um, signs. And we also find that sometimes in humans who um, communicate primarily through, through ASL, um, but we also find vocalizations in humans while they're dreaming, right? Like it, it's our version of ASL if we don't communicate using ASL. We sometimes say things that we are saying in the dream out loud. Um, and that tends to be more common in the case of nightmares uh, when you start you know, panicking in, in your dream and you start speaking um, and arousal is such that it causes a verbal, um, a verbal expression to, to, to break through. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say more active. I would just say active in a species specific way um, or animal specific way. So to follow up on what Isel's research is, uh, uh, David, uh, we had a question this week and we're wondering, uh, maybe you can help us with that question. Do animals daydream? There, I do have a section in the book about daydreaming. It is in the chapter on imagination. Um, although it is not quite as developed as I want it to be, because I had difficulty finding 
the kind of data that would allow me to make stronger claims about this. Um, but I think in the future, I, I will need to explore this a little bit more. So in, in the chat, I'm, I'm not sure if people read sections of the book or not, it doesn't matter. Um, in, the, in the book, I spent a lot of time talking about mental replay, which is a complex neuronal event that happens when animals are asleep where they replay a sequence from the past. Um, and there's an ambulance running outside. I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, right. um, and, and so neuro, um, mental replay allows us to make very close uh, one map, mappings of, of a one-to-one -one order between uh, what is happening to the animal during a waking period and during a dream. So I talk about finches, zebra finches, that um, when they're awake, they will rehearse their song. And that creates a very, very specific um, sequence of neural activation. And then you see that exact same sequence um, again during their version of REM sleep. Um, and so there is an episode-specific correspondence. We have also found, and this is now to bring it back to the question of mind wandering or daydreaming, um, and with rats, we have found mental replay um, of that exact same kind, not so much when the animal is awake versus when the animal is asleep, although we have also found that as well, but we have found mental replay during moments when an animal is um, doing a cognitive test, like running through a maze, and then they are allowed to rest for an extended period of time without having the mind focus on any particular task. And during those moments of repose, the animal begins to show a kind of activity that is very similar to what in humans we call daydreaming or mind wandering, which in our case is also um, triggered when, when we don't have attention on a task specific object. Uh, you know, you're just sitting there thinking about nothing and then your mind starts running. In humans, we associate that with the activity of the default mode network. Um, and now people are talking about the default mode network in other mammals, including rats as well. Um, and, but again, this is something that I, I hope to explore more in the future, but there is a small section in the book where I talk about um, mind wandering and daydreaming in, in other animals, yeah. Okay, questions? Other questions? Because I have tons of questions, but I don't want to take them. Uh, so you stated that there's a lot of uh, um, like research made on the physio physiological aspects of the sleep versus like the conscious implication, consciousness implication. And Olivier said that the, there was a taboo surrounding animal dreams. Uh, is there a reason for this or uh, it's just coincidental? Um, no, I mean, no taboo is ever coincidental. <laughs> all taboos are um, motivated by all kinds of um, fears and um, background beliefs. And in the opening chapter of the book, I do tell a story about the emergence of this taboo out of the rise of behaviorism in psychology in the early 20th century, which was a school of thinking that presented other animals as black boxes um, whose internal states are either inaccessible to us uh, and therefore indescribable or non-existent uh, and therefore also indescribable. And so behaviorists would say, don't worry about what animals are thinking, feeling, believing, that's a mute question. Just describe the behavior in as much detail as you can. So, you know, tell me how the limb moved, tell me how the muscle was activated um, by the central nervous system, so on and so forth. And this movement away from the mental um, in the behaviorist tradition actually cut across the human-animal divide. Um, although I really uh, dislike behaviorist psychology, I have to say that for all of their uh, shortcomings, one virtue that the behaviorists had is that they were equal um, in their description of human and non-human animals as black boxes. 
So they didn't recognize the difference uh, of humans as the special animal whose mental states we we do have access to. They they presented an equal playing field in which all animals are just black boxes with input output um, circuits of behavior production. Um, and over time, of course, psychology, especially around the 1950s with what is known as the cognitive revolution, abandoned behaviorism. But as I point out in the book, we abandoned behaviorism for humans, but we selectively kept it for animals. Um, to the point that even today, um, there are a lot of people who still think, even if they wouldn't quite articulate it in that way, about animals in behaviorist, essentially behaviorist terms. Um, and you usually see that inclination um, whenever people shy away from using psychological, cognitive, or phenomenological concepts to talk about animal experience. Um, and, and there the idea is you don't go there, you, you only go to physiology and anatomy. Um, and so you just explain everything in terms of causal relations without a mental component. And so the taboo there um, does come out of the rise of behaviorism, and I describe it as a form of, of mentophobia, uh, a fear of recognizing the, the inner rich mental lives of other species. So it's essentially a form of speciesism extended to, to psychology. Okay, so I, I, I do have a question. So you, you if I'm not mistaken, uh, and tell me if, if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that when you spoke about animals' dream and it, what it means about what animals are and sort of, it's almost a proof of their consciousness if they have this, this I, I in, the, in the world, what do you call it, the ego dream, or right, the, the dream ego? Uh, so I find it fascinating, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's, it's like dreams are sort of the uh, original source of what we could call consciousness of, or, or the ontology of being alive. Is, is, is this sort of the point of departure? Would dreams be the ability to dream be the first proof of consciousness? I'm not sure that I would say the first proof, um, since that presupposes either chronological or ontological primacy of some sort. Um, and uh, there are people who actually disagree about the chronology of, or the, the phylogeny more specifically, of dreaming versus consciousness. So the majority of people make the claim that we develop consciousness at some point in the history of life. Um, and, and then that became dreaming in particular cases. Um, and, there are a couple of people who turn the argument around and who say that the first um, emergence of conscious experience was actually in the form of dreaming, and then it was extended to waking experience. I don't, I, I don't discuss these um, theories in the book because they they would have taken me in a very different direction of of the evolution of of evolutionary theory. Um, and what I what I do argue in the book, especially in the chapter on consciousness, is that because of the kind of thing that dreaming is, as soon as you have it, then a few things automatically follow about the creature that possesses it. Um, and, and some of the things that I articulate as logical consequences of, of being a dreamer are that you necessarily have an ecological structuring of experience uh, because there is no dream that doesn't have the perspective of a dream ego that is not experienced from a certain perspective and this is just a core insight of the school of philosophy known as phenomenology that every experience presupposes the ex presupposes the existence of an experiencing subject um, experience happens to someone who lives it from a point of view, um, and, you know, barring the existence of an all-seeing, omnipresent subject like God. Um, and, and so I talk about this kind of very basic um, form of subjectivity that I call subjective awareness. Um, and, and it just refers to that having of a, of a first-person perspective in the world. Some people call that sentience. The terminology gets a little bit 
messy in a lot of um, research on consciousness because we don't have any agreed upon usage. I, I also talk about another implication, which is a little bit more controversial, and that is what I call affective consciousness. So this is um, the influence of philosophy of emotions, affective neuroscience, making its way into the book. Not a lot of people agree with this, but, but this is my view. And that is that all dreams, and in fact, all subjective experience, presupposes some minimal dimension of affect, of experiencing things as either positive or negative. So there is a hedonic valence, like a spectrum of positive versus negative or attractive versus repulsive. Um, and that means that even an organism that is minimally sentient already has a sense of value um, and, and judges things as positive or negative for that organism. And so I, I developed this argument about affect and emotion and sentiment, which I think is just baked into the sort of thing that experience is. So it's not as if we have experience and then we add emotions on top of that. I think experience is effective from the very beginning. Um, and I, I have a lot of difficulty envisioning a real case of, of an experiencing subject with absolutely zero affect. Um, that to me is, is conceptually incoherent. So I do talk about emotions in the book, about sentiments, and that comes out primarily in my research on, on nightmares, where you really see the emotions of animals come out um, in the form of negative dreams. Um, and yeah, I talk about a few other things like imagination, uh, metacognition, um, although those arguments you know, require a little bit more description. So Lucy, that's exactly your subject. Do you want to do you want to maybe ask a question to David? Because it's exactly your your topic is exactly I think what he's working on. Um. Yes, I'm just formulating it. Um. I'm also interested in like the idea of kind of subjective and objective and how we kind of understand things from different perspectives. Um. I think I would be inclined to also agree that like experiences do have to have some degree of affect and they have to have some sort of dimension of positive and negative and can't be fully neutral. Um, I think how to phrase this. Do you, th if we are observing someone else's experience and trying in our best way that we can to kind of observe um, another organism or person's experience from like their point of view, like in like people watching and things like that, when you're trying to sort of place yourself viewing things from the eyes of the other person. Do you think that you can, um, I guess, like to what extent can you separate the, from your own like affective consciousness? Like, I think that we can never fully, like we of course can never fully separate from our own consciousness and like put ourselves 100% in someone else's shoes. But do you think that we can, yeah, like do that at least to some degree to try and like uh, realize the affect of someone else's consciousness? Yeah, so I, anybody who works on animals faces this question about method, first and foremost. How do I speak about animals that have a different morphology, a different evolution, different sensory systems? And, you know, there are animals that it's just, it's so different um, that they have senses for which we don't have even an, 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 an analogous capacity you know, how do I think about echolocation or how do I think about magnetic perception? Um, and, or how do I think about the, the dual consciousness of octopuses given their decentralized uh, distributed nervous system? You know, like the, the very unity of experience is called into question in that case in really interesting ways. Um, and the way I think about this <clears throat> is that is by thinking about the kind of access that we have to the experience of other animals. So I, I do think there are a lot of limits and in my work, I try to flag those. And I think that there is even an ethical component to recognizing those limits and that inaccessibility. 
I will never experience the world from the perspective of a jumping spider. Um, and whatever imaginative exercise I do will, will still be me as a human trying to imagine that. Um, and however, I do think that we have a kind of given access to the subjectivity of other animals, not to the content, but to the fact that they are subjects. And uh, this is an argument that I, <clears throat> that I derive largely from Wittgenstein, who makes the claim that when people think about the, other, the problem of other minds, right? How do I know that you are conscious? People think that it's an inferential process. Like, oh, I look at your behavior and then I set out my premises and then in my mind I reason and then I draw the conclusion that on the basis of these, prefer of these premises, you must be a conscious subject like me. So it's the result of an inferential chain. And Wittgenstein says that's already a major abstraction. Um, in fact, it's a philosophical and a scientific reconstruction of something that happens much more intuitively. Because for the average person, that question never really presents itself as a serious question, right? It's not as if I go to the store and I really think, how do I know that the person giving me the tomato is not a robot? It's a false problem. And for Wittgenstein, uh, Wittgenstein <clears throat> this has to do with the fact that we have our, our access to the consciousness of other people is not rational or inferential, it is perceptual. You see the subjectivity in the mode of life, in the style of living. So in the movement, in the fact that their behaviors make sense relative to the environment. And it's something that you sort of just see in the same way that we say that you see the joy in the smile, right? We don't see the smile and then have to think, oh, the teeth are showing, the lips are extended, therefore the person must be happy. The smile is the, ha the happiness or the joy. And similarly, the behavior, the intentional behavior of the other is their subjectivity. And I think something similar happens with, with animals that it becomes a problem only when we step back from that direct form of engagement um, with other species. Admittedly, this raises questions with, you know, when you're talking about insects and when you're talking about arthropods. Um, and, but I, I do think it still applies. I think when I, I look at a spider, I, I sort of see its, its sentience in, in its movement, in its, in its way of being. Um, but this is a minoritarian position in the philosophy of mind literature. Most people want reasons for believing in consciousness. And I just, I, I think it's a false problem to a large extent. No, I, I think that's a very, yeah, like I, that's a very interesting position. That actually makes a lot of sense to me as well, because it is interesting that whenever the question of like, well, we don't know necessarily that anyone else has consciousness, whenever that question comes up, it is kind of weird and jarring. So it makes actually a lot of sense that there is sort of an, an intuitive like belief or knowledge that we have that other people have consciousness. And that's why like it's strange to consider that they wouldn't, even though like, we can't think of like a, a true sort of like proof or evidence. So I think, yeah, no, that's very revealing. Okay, Fiona. Yes, uh, kind of along those lines. Uh, so I did I did my degree in part in biology, and I noticed that any kind of behavioral ecology class or animal behavior class I took was very very careful not to anthropomorphize any other animals, and obviously there's a very good reason for that. Other animals aren't human, so there's a limit to how much any kind of anthropomorphism would help us understand. But I always felt that they went too far in that direction. And that saying that animals are completely different from human is just as bad as saying that they're exactly the same as humans. Um, so I was wondering if you, like how much you, you've thought about the kind of the problem of anthropomorphism, if this is a thing that came up during your research um, and how you dealt with it. 
Yeah, it, it definitely came up. And uh, in the book, I talk about the spectrum between anthropomorphism, again, this danger of projecting the human onto the non-human. And that's the danger that most scientists in particular are really, really worried about. And uh, I make the argument that scientists should be at least equally worried about the inverse of that, which is called sometimes anthropodenial, um, which is the denial of certain parallels to animals on the basis of a fear of being anthropomorphic. Um, and, and uh, you know, when you think about contemporary scientists, and I'm talking about big names here, who still say, no, we can't say that animals feel fear because that's too anthropomorphic. Well, that presupposes that only humans feel fear or joy or pleasure. And so what presuppositions are already there in the background when somebody expresses a concern about anthropomorphism? Because as a philosopher, I, I do believe that there are no such things as objective worldviews that mirror the world without prejudices. Um, and, and so it's not as if, let's say the animal advocates have a certain worldview with certain presuppositions and uh, the scientists don't have those. Um, and th there is also a set of assumptions that go into articulating a position that is worried about anthropo anthropomorphism. And uh, one of those assumptions is that there is some fundamental difference that will allow us to, to police or to patrol the difference between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom. With that in mind, I do recognize that, of course, anthropomorphism is a real thing. Um, uh, you know, there, there are claims that we could make about animals that that seem wrong uh, and that seem politically motivated in certain cases. Um, and, but I, I do think that fears of anthropomorphism are usually overblown. Um, and, and it seems to me that that has a lot to do with norms around scientific culture, about how one goes about flagging that one is a serious scientist in the contemporary climate. Um, and, and so there is a footnote in the book where I talk about this, about how it has to do with norms of professionalization in the sciences. Uh, yeah, I was I was wondering if, I guess, it could like go into the, the problem that understanding lucid dreaming in animals, since like they can't tell us their dreams, so we can't really tell if they've, they've had lucid dreaming, but uh, I was wondering if there's any evidence or research into whether animals can recall their dreams, um, or like that it makes, a, makes an impact in their behavior, or like how they, uh, I don't know, like it changes their behavior in any way. Okay. So there are three pieces here, I think, to the question. One is the lucid dreaming, one is the recollection or the recall of dreams, and then the effect on behavior down the road. Um, and I'm actually going to take them in reverse order because that's the way it makes <laughs> the most sense to me uh, to think through it. So we do know that there are downstream consequences to dreams um, and, and animals' behavior in the waking state following a dream episode can change, especially in the case of nightmares. Um, and, and uh, you know, I talk about the nightmares of elephants who have been traumatized um, and experienced something like PTSD. I talk about rats where um, in, in laboratories, um, they will induce nightmares and then the animals will remember in their waking state um, the place in which in which that happened. So there does seem to be um, a carrying into the future of memories that are produced in the context of dreaming. But that's as much as I can say about that. Whether animals recall their dreams right upon waking up, that I, I, I say in the conclusion, I have no basis for making claims one way or the other. Um, and so that's an open question that I punt to, to future readers and writers on the subject. 
Um, and uh, it's one of many open questions that, that I do not address in the book just because I, I don't think there is much of a way to do so. Um, then there is a question of lucid dreaming. Um, and in chapter two, there is a section on lucid dreaming, but I am very careful in that section to flag it as the most speculative portion of the book where I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to fend off um, or, or avoid committing to any strong claims because it is merely a possibility that just happens to be accommodated by certain theories of lucid dreaming and certain evidence that we have about animals, but it's not direct. So it's all indirect evidence. And the indirect evidence that we have for lucid dreaming is that lucid dreaming is typically thought to be a kind of metacognition. Um, it's when you know that you are dreaming, which means that you are reflecting on, not on the world, but on your own mental state. I am aware that I am dreaming right now. Metacognition, along with language and reason and morality, is one of those concepts that has been used to perform that policing function between the human and the non-human for intuitive reasons, right? It seems like that is really high up there cognitively to expect other animals to do it. Um, but in the last 15 to 20 years, there has been a pretty significant expansion in research on animal metacognition. And so now we know that there are many animals, I mean, primarily mammals, but there are also some birds um, that, that perform mental monitoring tasks that fall squarely within the ambit of metacognition, where it's clear that they are in some way thinking about their own thoughts rather than about an external object. So dreaming that is lucid is a form of metacognition. We know that animals, some animals, are capable of some metacognitive achievements. And there are some theories of lucid dreaming out there that I found where the authors make the connection between those two. And they say, look, it could be that some animals, if they have metacognition and lucid dreaming would just be the expression of metacognition in the context of sleep. Um, but we have no direct evidence and I don't think that we actually could have evidence of that except if we found some um, clear neural parallels in other species with the same brain structures as we do. Um, but then that just limits the scope and that evidence is not out there just yet. Yeah, so very, it's a very speculative claim. Um, and uh, and I, I just wanna flag that just as I did in the book. A more specific question, David, how do you, differ, because you, you talked about experience and the uh, effective impact, how do, you, how do you define experience in that case? In connection to metacognition or just in general? Or in general, in, in relation to, 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 to dreams, because then, right. Yeah. I would describe experience as, let me think about how to say it in a way that is faithful to my position. Because um, I actually don't define experience at any one point, but the thing that comes closest to it is my notion of subjective consciousness when there is an I for whom a world lights up. Um, and, and so there are two terms here that I could use to capture what I mean by experience. One is um, the, the Buddhist and largely yogic concept of luminosity. The idea that, again, it's, it's a metaphor of light here, that something appears to an experiencing ego or to a self that can grasp it or relate to it. So there is a phenomenal field that surrounds a self. So whenever you have that structure, that's an experiential world. What sensory modalities doesn't matter. What objects are in that world doesn't matter. Experience would be that kind of relationship between an, a subject 
in a field. And it's a field that presents itself to that subject. Um, and that, that term that I just used, present, is the second term that I would also use that I draw primarily from Western phenomenology. Um, and, and that is that the subject is presented with objects. Um, and so reality manifests itself. There is a kind of manifestation that comes. Um, and, and again, because I don't think there can be an experience that is neutral effectively, I think there is already a, a kind of tension in that world, affective tension, and that's what I would call experience. It's it's a subject in a world. So, so I think a, I think a couple of neuroscientists or philosopher of, of, of the brain actually mentioned. Tell me if, I, if that's part of the luminosity uh, uh, your, your idea on this. Is the experience of pain actually as 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 the, as the first experience of a sort of phenomenological experience? Yes, and this would be very closely connected to what I mentioned earlier between that spectrum, that hedonic scale of repulsive and attractive. Um, I like the positive. I like the more general terms: repulsive, attractive, positive, negative, rather than pain. Uh, because there are things that can be disagreeable or repulsive to an organism that make the organism move in a different direction without them necessarily rising to the level of, of pain, um, per se, or suffering. But once the organism is moving through a valenced environment where the organism is having to make a choice of moving this way or that way, I think as soon as you have that very basic structure, that's that's experience. So I'm trying to articulate something that is maybe a little bit simpler, but still in principle similar to that pain pleasure divide that you that you typically get. Okay, on a very speculative point, really speculative, if if all living things need sleep, do plants dream? Do trees dream? Can you dream without a brain? There has been some really interesting stuff on plant, quote unquote, neurobiology, which is, I mean, just to start, it's somewhat of a misnomer since plants don't have neurons, um, only animals do. Um, but a lot of this research came out of um, Australia in the work of Monica Gagliano, a plant expert who started noting things like memory in plants or associative learning. This research has been extremely controversial. Um, and, and I am very much on the fence. Uh, I was excited about it when it came out. Now there's been a couple of, of articles that have been unable to replicate the findings. So I'm, I, I find myself walking back um, from, from that precipice of, of plants. Um, and, and so I think I'm still committed to there being a qualitative difference between plants and animals, even though anybody who works in this field has to recognize that there is no clean break between these categories. Um, at some point, you know, nature doesn't care about our, our need for, for categorical differences between things. Um, and, and so I would say no, I would limit my account definitely to, to animals. I would say that now we know that most animals need um, sleep. Um, it also depends on how you define animal, like what you include at the lower end of that. But yeah, most animals need sleep. And uh, one of the things that I establish in the book is that not only do most animals sleep, but most animals seem to have their own version of a biphasic sleep cycle where there are periods of rest, restful sleep, and then these periods of more active, um, of higher activity that is both behavioral and um, neural. And so it's usually in those periods of fast activity um, that, you, that you are going to expect to find dreams, although not exclusively. Um, people, humans dream in REM and non-REM sleep. So for now, I would say, I'm I'm no longer um, 
I was toying with the idea of, of trying to think more closely about plants and consciousness, but I'm not quite ready to do that. Um, I'd be intrigued to hear uh, you extrapolate a little bit on the final pivot of the book towards the ethics, you know, speciesism, singer, concept, effective neuroscience. Um, there are affinities in the room, I think, in terms of that kind of viewpoint. Um, where, where did you go in the book when you, you thought about the ethical implications of that? Yeah, towards the end of the book, I introduce a very common distinction that is made in the science and philosophy of consciousness, which is the difference between what is known as access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Um, and now, you know, there are people who don't like this taxonomy. It might be too simple, but it does capture something of significance, um, and, which is that there are certain kinds of experience that have to do with cognition, with thought, with language, with reportability. But then there are other experiences that, that exist at a more fundamental level and that have to do with the raw feeling of the experience itself. Um, and, and that in fact are not tied to high level cognitive operations that are very difficult to even describe in language precisely because they are so primal in a way. Think about our perception of colors. You know, how do you explain what red is to somebody who has never seen the color red? It's just very difficult because in order for you to convey that, the other person has to have the experience on their own. It's not a bit of information that you can just share through language. Compare that to something that is more cognitive and that is just information. Um, like factical knowledge. So even if, if somebody has never been to France and has never seen the Eiffel Tower and I tell them, well, the Eiffel Tower is this many meters tall, then they have the information and now they know. Um, so it is transferable information, but the experience of red is not, it's not transferable in that way. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, and how much you know scientifically about the color red. Um, and, and so this distinction between those two kinds of experience, one that is cognitive, rational, linguistic, and another one that is embodied, felt, affective, does track onto something that we intuitively recognize as, as telling us something about the structure of our experience. Now, there is this ongoing debate among people who talk about moral uh, moral value or moral significance, about which of those two kinds of experience really makes a difference when it comes to moral debates. So if I try to figure out who is entitled to moral dignity or respect or moral rights, whatever term you want to use, what am I looking for? in order to say this creature really matters from a moral point of view. There are philosophers who make the argument, um, in fact, quite a lot of them, who make the argument that the thing that really makes us have moral value is that higher level of cognitive performance, that access consciousness. Um, and and uh, in the book, I argue that that's mistaken. Um, and. Uh, and quite morally dangerous. Because if you tie morality to such a high bar, then you leave out a lot more than any of us should be comfortable leaving out of the domain of moral care. Um, and, and so you can already imagine, you know, the, the things that are, the, the kinds of beings that are left out. There are questions about cognitive ableism here at work. Um, and they're, I mean, children basically before what, six or seven before the age of reason are left out of moral concern. Um, and the totality of the known human world is left out. Um, and so the only thing that then matters morally on this view is what neurotypical adult humans, um, that seems like a really narrow slice of the universe. <laughs> Um, and so in the book, I, I make this argument that 
there is this debate, this debate, I put my cards on the table that I actually think what really matters morally as the foundation of morality is phenomenal consciousness, not access consciousness. And then I make an argument about the fact that dreams are an example of phenomenal consciousness, not access consciousness. They can be access conscious, like when you have lucid dreaming, which we talked about, you know, those moments where cognition goes into, into that higher level um, of, of activation. But most of our dreams actually seem to be primarily phenomenal experiences that we're just kind of feeling and undergoing without a lot of cognitive executive centralized control. Um, and this is reflected at the neural level because we know that um, the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is typically deactivated during dreaming. So you're having experiences, but you're not thinking rationally about them. Uh, the rational core of, of the mind is quieted. And so that's how I approach the question of morality at the end. I say, dreaming is the sort of thing that is one example of this phenomenal consciousness, which is the foundation of, of moral status. Um, and then that means that any animal that dreams has that kind of consciousness and therefore is entitled to moral status, which is just a very basic protection, which would entitle beings to basic moral respect, meaning respect for their life and for their their mode of being in the world. Thank you very much. That was an extraordinary answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of directions I could travel. We can move into the Rigpa, down into the luminosity of the Buddhists, which is the, the, the conscious inerrant, the innate luminosity that is dreaming all the appearances of the phenomenal world. Um, that's what I was thinking about, but um, maybe that's a little far. I would love to hear, um, but I don't know if it's it's actually a tangent or not, but I think a, a lot of the, the model organisms that are emerging in terms of lab work right now seem to me like an extraordinary uh, moral dilemma for our civilization in that the, the research capacities of our universities and laboratories are founded upon the actual exploitation of sentient creatures whose DNA is tuned to specific purposes. And your kind of argument would be very valuable in, in that ongoing conversation. You, you said it so casually that rats have nightmares or that you induce nightmares in rats. And I wonder, how do you know that you've done so? And how do you do that? If it's not really gross, which it would be considered. It is, it is not gross, but it is somewhat macabre. Um, and and uh, there are two places where I found evidence of nightmares in other species. One is just field studies out in um, sanctuaries for traumatized animals, um, especially primates and elephants that were brutalized and that witnessed horrible things when they were young. Um, and, and they developed maladaptive sleep architectures for the rest of their lives. Um, and often waking up in a panic in, in the middle of the night, unable to sleep um, for a long time, but especially in the months following um, the traumatic event. Um, so that's the field studies. The laboratory studies, there haven't been that very, there, there haven't been that many, um, but I found two out of um, the University of Peking in China, where what researchers did is they took two groups of rats and they subjected them, one group to, and there was a control group, of course, um, but one group was subjected to physical pain uh, in a particular uh, cage or environment in the form of electrical shocks to the feet. Um, another group was subjected to psychological suffering in the form of them watching the first group be tortured with electrical shock to the feet. So one, one group is being tortured, the other one is watching, kind of panicking on the side. Um, and, and they did that enough 
until they notice that the animals were no longer able to sleep through the night. And so they start, because the, the difference between a bad dream and a nightmare is that is what is known as um, startled behavior, which is that the animal is so worked up in the middle of the night that they actually break out of the sleep cycle and wake up, right? Like a nightmare is when it's so bad that you wake up. Um, and, and so once the animals were conditioned enough, um, they start displaying startle behavior um, and, and they start waking up uh, and it, you see all the physiological signs of, of negative arousal. Uh, the, the, heart, the heart is pumping, um, blood pressure is up, all the signs of stress, um, kind of vocalizations that you normally wouldn't find. Um, and, and so what the researchers found is that they could induce this startled behavior where they wake up at a non-normal time in the sleep cycle in both groups, not just the ones that were tortured were waking up in a panic, but the ones that witnessed the other animals be tortured started having these negative affect overlines in, in the middle of their sleep cycle. And what's really interesting about this research is that then they took out the animals out of that environment and weeks later they reintroduced them to the same place where the original trauma took place and immediately whatever progress they had made with reestablishing a normal sleep pattern, whatever benefit was gained from taking them out, it would be walked back. So as soon as they were reintroduced to the space, uh, suggesting that they remember what happened there. And once again, they would begin having nightmares. Um, and so I, I talk about that research in the book, although this is yet another case of the, the the people who conducted this research refused to use the term nightmare because again it seems a little bit too anthropomorphic to them and so they just limit themselves to talking about jolting behavior um during rem uh, and non-rem sleep yeah okay so uh wow so okay so any any because uh, we have to let our uh, guests go to any any last thoughts question Okay, Anita. Um, what? Just in case you can't hear me. She had to leave, but uh, one of the students that was here, her question is essentially, well, why don't we just let the inevitable happen? And, you know, mass extinction seemed to bring something better, so let's just get there. But in the beginning when you were introducing your, your uh, research, then I thought, well, you kind of give a really nice answer for that, which is just that we're not the only ones that should be controlling that destiny. So maybe there's a, a simple answer to that, which is if we just reframe our moral framework according to assuming rights to others than humans, and maybe, but I figured you could frame that a little bit more eloquently. So I wondered what you might have to say about that. About, about extinction and... Yeah, our behavior. Can you paraphrase it? Uh, yeah, I can you repeat it just to make sure I quite grasp the. I think what Victoria was looking, Victoria is looking at one of our students is that saying, oh, "Well, there's been five, five or six in mass extinctions." Six, I think we're at. Six. This is the sixth or the sixth. Anyways, five. Yeah, this is the sixth, and she was wondering whether this is a normal process of nature, right? You get to a point, and then mass extinction, and then you you jumpstart the whole point again, and. What she wants to explore, which is a very unusual perspective, is whether you know we're just part of that natural process, and we just let, should let go of that extinction, so that nature can actually uh, renew itself for you know, tens of thousands of years. Is that sort of a... Yeah, but so the question is, under his framework, yes, where we we realize that we're not the only ones that should control the destiny of this home of many things, so. So does your research give kind of a nice answer to this question, like this philosophical question within the field of ecology? As much as I want to say yes, sadly it doesn't. Um, and I, I don't touch on the question of, of um, the Anthropocene. Um, and I think it's one of those areas of where biology meets philosophy, that's really difficult to talk in terms of value. 
Um, because of course, extinctions are facts. 99.9% .9 of species that have ever existed have gone extinct. Um, and, and so what's different about our current predicament, of course, is the anthropogenic nature of climate change, the speed with which it has been brought about and the disruption in natural cycles that it is producing. Although, of course, from the standpoint of nature, if we can speak about such thing, um, these are changes that are not going to destroy nature itself. Nature will continue in, in a new form um, or under new parameters. Maybe that's how we can say that. Um, those new parameters are still conducive to life. I don't think there's anybody out there who believes that life will, will come to an end um, in the next thousand years. Um, it's just that either human life will come to an end or human life will come to an end in its current form. Um, and and the, I, I do think groups of people will probably survive. Um, and I'm worried that it's going to be the people that we <laughs> might not choose as are the representatives of humanity, those who control resources, have accumulated enough wealth um, and are able to, to make it through um, whatever terrible social upheavals are coming our way due to climate change. Um, so I'm here thinking about, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world who are going to be hunkered down uh, <laughs> in their bunkers with their yachts. Um, and, and who knows? Maybe they'll be the ones who survive, maybe not. <laughs> Either way, I'm not sure I want to be in, in a world where that type is <laughs> uh, the one who survive. <laughs> but it, it's difficult, right? Um, and, and the one thing that I do think about the possibility of human extinction is that a lot would be lost, but not everything would be lost insofar as other animals produce meaning as well. Other animals form bonds and relations and societies. Um, and, and so it's not that I think nature will replenish itself in the sense of going back like a rubber band to an original starting point. Um, as Stephen Jay Gould once said, nature only plays forward, there is no rewind. Um, and so there is no replenishing, it's just unfolding under, under a new set of parameters and we might not be in the picture, but it's still a world with, with affect, it's a world with meaning, it's a world with relations, it's a world with purpose for those who are still there or the new ones that arrive. Um, and, and I do find an element of what Nietzsche calls metaphysical consolation in thinking about the fact that other life forms will flourish, um, even if we're not there to, to witness that. Uh, there, there's a kind of sense of, yeah, consolation is the right term. Um, we're not there, but others will be. Oh, what a beautiful way to end this, David. Thank you so much. This was beautiful, wonderful, uh, thought-provoking, and so interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Search is profound and lucid. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, very much. I appreciate it. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. Bye.